This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 3rd, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, online news editor Catherine Matisik talks about a theory that humans may have domesticated themselves and that this change set the stage for the evolution of language. And Micah Edelson discusses his research on leadership and the role that responsibility aversion or the reluctance to make decisions for others might play in everyday decisions like picking a home for your family or to the way an autocrat rules a nation. And don't forget, this month's book segment will be on The Book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect by Yuta Pearl and Dana McKenzie, and that'll appear on August 30th. If you've read the book or plan to, tweet to us at Science Magazine or email us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org with your thoughts and questions. Now we have Catherine Matisek, an online news editor for Science. This week, she wrote a story along with Michael Arard on human self-domestication, and the evolution of language. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. This is a big topic, and I think we got to start with self-domestication and work our way over to the evolution of language. We'll I get there eventually. I think that's a good idea. Okay. The term self-domestication kind of always brings me up short because I think of domestication as something that's like external to the organism. Another animal saying, you're going to be nicer, you're going to be more docile, and you're going to serve my needs. You're going to have really big muscles. So how can something self-domesticate? A lot of it depends on how you define this term domestication, because in many cases, we're looking at it from this process, right? This process whereby usually humans take other animals and breed them uh, for desired characteristics, you know, whether that's bigger muscles, as you said. But usually part of this is we're breeding animals for tameness, for docility, because we don't want to be going up against a cow that's going to kick us in the face when we try to milk it. But another way to look at domestication, another way to define it is to look at the outcomes. Mm -hmm. All we're looking at is the end product and saying, is this creature at the other end less aggressive? Is it more docile? Is it more tame? So does that fit better with this idea of self-domestication then? Self-domestication is something where we don't have some other you know, creature on the outside being the one to decide who gets bred to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Instead, what's really interesting is with humans over many, many generations, right? Like we're talking hundreds of thousands of years here. As we became more reliant on cooperation, 
we basically self-selected for cooperative, friendly, kind individuals. We basically kick the aggressive ones or the most aggressive ones out of the gene pool. So we self-domesticated. Right. So we have some of these same suite of traits that domesticated animals have? Yeah, that's right. And so when you select for something like tameness, there are all of these other traits that come along for the ride. And a lot of them are physical. You know, if you look at dogs versus wolves, they have shorter snouts, shorter faces. A lot of times animals that have been domesticated have smoother brow lines and smaller skulls. And you can see a lot of these changes over time in people as well. One of the most interesting ones that I came across is this trait in which domesticated animals tend to have a lot of white around their eyes. You mean like inside the eye, like around the iris? Right, the sclera, that part of the eye. The idea is that if you want to communicate with other animals, you really have to let them know what your intent is. They have to be able to read your mind. And one of the best ways to do this, especially with mammals, is to follow the direction that their eyes are going. There's something that you want other people to pay attention to. Your eyes are going to go in that direction. But if you don't have those whites around the eyes, Mm -hmm. it's very, very hard for people to follow your gaze. And as a result, it's very hard to use that as a communicative signal. Okay. So the suite of changes is obviously you can see it at the level of the animal, but there's also genetic and hormonal changes. A lot of those hormonal changes are happening at development. Right. And so this is where we talk about how do we get from these physical changes that you can observe in a lot of animals, including humans, to this idea of a language-ready brain or the ability to communicate. How are these things tied together, right? When you have animals that have been domesticated both before they're born and after they're born and while they're still in some cases developing, they have lower levels of testosterone and other circulating androgens, which are basically result in those smoother brows and the shorter faces But at the same time, they've got higher levels of serotonin. And this is a very important pro-social hormone, you could call it. In humans, they help us infer others' mental states. They help us learn through something called joint attention, Mm -hmm. which if you have a child is pretty obvious in its early years, an important way of teaching. You look at something, they look at something. The whole point is, is this social ability is a way of learning To take it one step further to language, there's evidence that higher levels of serotonin can help infants link objects and labels. And so the idea is that they're better able to take words and assign the meaning. And so all of these things that we're talking about may not be language per se, but they're the prerequisites. They're the building blocks for language. We're kind of making a big leap here between domesticated animals and supposedly self-domesticated people. I mean, foxes, for example, the famous fox study where they domesticated them over time and they chose, you know, they basically selected for this suite of characteristics. They're not saying anything. No, they're not saying anything, but they're looking at you. Yeah. So this is what I mean by the building blocks of language. Mm -hmm. Researchers now are doing something that, you know, hasn't really been done in a very comprehensive way before, and that is looking at different animals to see what the parallels might be to human language development. And again, we're not talking about 
full-blown language, we're talking about some of these building blocks. And so in the case of foxes, what's really interesting with the experiment that you mentioned, basically after 50 generations, uh, these breeders have taken these crazy wild foxes that, you know, wouldn't be around humans and bred them to the point to where they're very tame. And they have a lot of the physical characteristics we mentioned earlier. But these domesticated foxes are much better at understanding human pointing and gazing, just like the infants we talked about earlier. So this is basically this ability to mind read, which is key to the development of language. Let's talk about another uh, common human stand-in. So this is uh, the primate called the bonobo. These are great apes that have some pretty tame habits. Right. This is one of the few other species that may have actually self-domesticated themselves. Bonobos are well known for being very gentle, very low levels of aggression. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think females will not mate with males that are too aggressive. But in addition to that, they also have a couple of characteristics that we look for when we think of a language-ready brain. And one of them is that they are able to follow the gaze of others. And they actually, in laboratory settings, have been shown to understand human intent. But the thing that we're going to talk about is their ability to take their calls and recombine them in novel ways. Now, none of us know what these calls mean, but recent research has shown what bonobos can do is they can take these calls and they recombine them in different ways in different situations. And again, there's not enough evidence to suggest that this is really anything approaching language, but it shows this really creative ability to improvise. And improvisation is one of the keys to coming up with a flexible language. So, and we're linking that to this idea of self-domestication this Correct. time in bonobos. Yeah. Let's turn to one more animal example that's being used in this type of research, and this is the Bengalese finch and the munia. These are two birds, um, one very friendly slash domesticated and the other one wild. What have we been learning from this pairing? So it's really interesting that researchers are turning to birds to study these precursors of language because, as you know, they're pretty removed from us, uh, evolutionarily speaking. But these songbirds, they are able to do something called vocal learning where they hear the song of other birds and if they're young enough, reproduce them. And in this case, we have an example of a bird that was only recently domesticated. About 250 years ago, breeders took this wild bird, the Munia, and started breeding the birds to where they were gentle and more docile. And as they did this, the bird's songs changed. And you have examples for us? Yes, we do. And let me tell you first how they changed, and that way you can listen for it. Mm -hmm. But the Munia, which is the wild bird, has this, you know, kind of nice, kind of scratchy, very noisy song. But the Bengalese finch has produced a type of song that has these elements that repeat over and over again and switch around in really interesting ways. And there's also a bit less noise. So, so you can listen and see if you can hear the difference. Let's go with the Munia first. And then here's the finch.
What do you think? One of them is much prettier than the other. Right, yeah. So people are not teaching these birds how Mm -hmm. to sing. They're learning from other birds. One researcher in particular has speculated and has gathered some evidence to support this, that the birds who are domesticated not only have maybe some changes that are taking place, like the ones we suggested earlier, but because they live in very low-stress environments, this frees their brains up for experimentation and learning in a way that's sort of similar, I guess, to the experimentation of the bonobos, where they're taking these songs and they're recombining them in different ways. And the other thing that supports this is there have been studies where the Bengalese finch, who have lower levels of stress hormones in their feces, have brain regions that are related to song development that have more neurons, Mm. in part because they have fewer of these stress hormones that are circulating. All right. I'm going to say one more time. (laughs) These birds aren't talking. Those foxes aren't talking. What does this say about what happened with people? Right, because you have all of this evidence suggesting that there are big changes taking place as a result of what we would call domestication or self-domestication. How that translates into humans is basically, at this point, there's a pretty big gap that we need to fill. And so what a lot of researchers have suggested is that the big push that kind of pushed us over the edge from this experimentation and from this ability to sort of infer the intentions of others is the idea that as humans, we were competing against all of these other species for food, for territory, and that therefore there were pressures on us to become more cooperative. That's the way we essentially, you know, won the day and became the species that we are today. You know, they basically had this brain platform that they'd built up that readied them for language. And this intense cooperation, that was the thing that set the ball rolling in terms of making our signals more complex. So how does this compare to other theories of how language evolved? For example, gesture came first. Yeah. So the gesture thing, which includes everything, you know, from pointing and pantomiming to actual sign language, I don't think there's much conflict there. We're talking about all of these things, these building blocks that got the brain ready for complex communication and language, whether that's spoken language or whether that's gestured language. The whole point is, is we had all the tools ready to go. This does run up against what has been kind of the dominant theory since the 1950s in terms of how humans developed language. What a lot of linguists have posited is that there was this sudden, amazing, catastrophic genetic shift that took place at some point in our history where suddenly we had genes that allowed us to produce syntax, to produce grammar. And so I think the previous theories talk about this genetically encoded but very sudden shift. And here we're talking about something that is enabled by genes, but it's much more gradual and it proceeds in stages, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, rather than all at once. What are the next steps for this? How are we going to further refine this? What some researchers are doing now is they're actually looking 
at sets of genes that have been selected for in domesticated animals versus wild animals. So you're talking like, you know, a domesticated cow versus wild cattle, cats and dogs, horses as well. They've done these big screenings. They've gone through the literature, seen which genes vary in the groups of wild and domesticated animals. And then they've compared all of those genes to the genes that other researchers have found vary compared to our closest approximation of a wild cousin, which is the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. And so they looked at genes that were similarly selected in domesticated animals and modern humans, ran a bunch of tests, and basically came up with, I think, a couple dozen that are really, you know, that are common among all of them and that seem to have implications for things like brain plasticity and learning. And so there's some hint that there may be more evidence to be found uh, through genetic studies. Okay. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matasek is an online news editor for Science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Micah Edelson on his research into the role of responsibility aversion in leadership decisions. What makes you decide to defer to the group or decide for others? This week, we have Micah Edelson and colleagues. They've published research on a very tricky question. What makes people decide to lead? to decide for a group rather than defer to the group. This isn't the kind of question that can be answered with one study or probably even has one answer. But Micah and colleagues have come up with an experimental design that aims to pick out the influence of one potential driver, responsibility aversion. Micah's here to talk with us about how it fits in with ideas of leadership and at an even more basic level, the kinds of cognition we all engage in every day. Hi, Micah. Hello. Well, let's start with maybe a simple definition of what responsibility aversion is. So responsibility aversion is your willingness to make decisions that influence other people, or in this case, your unwillingness to do it, your preference not to make choices that influence other people. Going into this study, there were several ideas about how this kind of decision-making for others might work. Can you talk about some of those proposed ideas? Yeah, so you can imagine some pretty reasonable hypotheses that relate to how someone evaluates the actual underlying choice that they have to make. For example, if they, how do they look at the risks or the losses or the ambiguity involved in the choice? So you think of making a decision that influences uh, your entire family versus influence only yourself. You might be less willing to take risks when you're making a decision that influences your whole family. The same thing for losses. So that could be the way that you subjectively evaluate the underlying components of the choice. What does loss aversion mean then in this context? You don't like losing and it's worse if there's a group involved? In, in this case, it would mean that you will be more averse to losing when you're influencing the group. So you'll have a shift in that, the amount of loss aversion. And what about those of us that are power mad, <laughs> the ones who really want to make decisions for others? Exactly. So that's another potential hypothesis that just uh, people that like being in control, like making the decisions regardless of who they're affecting, and then they, they won't show any aversion to responsibility. That means that they won't really mind making decisions for other people. Maybe they'll even prefer making decisions for other people if they derive some benefit from that. So how did you set up an experiment 
or a set of experiments, actually, to look at the role of responsibility aversion in these kinds of decisions. So in our task, uh, the individuals uh, come into the lab and they make decisions as leaders of groups of four participants. They make uh, choices about gambles, uh, which have uh, changing probabilities of success or potential gains and losses. And they make this under two conditions that they respond to the same uh, gamble twice, once where the individual's uh, selection affects only her, only her monitor outcome, and in the group condition where the choice uh, affects all the group members. I thought this was very interesting that if they defer to the group, they have more information about what's going to happen. Exactly. So the group as a whole always has more information about the probabilities than any single individual. Deferring to the majority is the more informed action. And it, of course, is the more informed action, but it also means that you lose the power to determine your own outcome or your choice. And that means that on every trial, the participants have to kind of weigh both of these aspects. What's the subjective value of of determining the outcome versus the value of a better informed decision? What were some of the major differences between these two conditions when someone was deciding for themselves or when they were deciding for the group? We find that the way that the individuals are approaching uh, this question is, is that they hold a set of beliefs about how much certainty they require before making the choice themselves. And, and they use this, these beliefs to, to kind of set a, a certainty threshold. When they're faced with a the choice, they think about the choice options and they see if the value translates to a higher level of certainty than what is their threshold. And if it, if it is higher, then they'll make the, the choice themselves. If, if not, then they'll defer the choice to others. The critical thing is that just looking at the certainty threshold in isolation is, is not that informative. Right. What's really informative is how much they change this certainty threshold when they're faced with responsibility for others. And that's the key out-of-sample predictor of leadership. And when you looked at the threshold in your experimental setup, you saw that there was some correlation between what happened with your experimental subjects and their, say, military record or their answer on these questionnaires? So we tested if we could predict uh, standard measures of leadership ability using previously validated questionnaires or concrete measures such as military rank. So that was our way to also validate our protocol and our type of decision-making tasks that we have. The people that had higher leadership scores were people that didn't shift their certainty threshold. So they maintained it more or less the same. The people that had lower leadership scores were people that tended to shift this uh, certainty threshold to a larger degree. Now, this doesn't mean that they defer more or less. Right. Uh, They could also defer a lot and still shift the decision threshold very little. This is where your egalitarian versus authoritarian example comes in handy, I think. Because we're really talking about the important aspect in this framework is about this shift in the certainty threshold. It can account for many different leadership styles, including, for example, authoritarian leaders that make most of the decision themselves, but also egalitarian leaders that frequently seek group consensus, Mm -hmm. as long as they show a similar change in their certainty threshold. So obviously, in both of these cases, the authoritarian leader probably makes almost all the decisions themselves, whether it influences themselves only or influences other people in the group, and the egalitarian leader, the exact opposite, but they both can show a very small shift. So they both can be explained using this framework. That's like this, that's like leadership with a capital L dictators, heads of state. But this study is aimed to get at some very basic things that everybody does. Can you talk about how this applies to everyday decisions? Yeah, exactly. So leadership is really kind of a complicated or a bit fluffy uh, thing. So one option is to study it with qualitative techniques. And another option is to try to kind of break it down to components and and look at it mechanistically. And we focus on one uh, such component, uh, which we think is important and, and we call responsibility aversion. 
And this really goes beyond what we consider traditionally as, as leadership, just because it relates to, as you were mentioning, decisions that we make every day. You're making a choice, as we gave the example of an investment decision for yourself, for your entire family, if you're choosing uh, school for your children, etc. So these are decisions that you actually make quite often. And we try to develop conceptual and, and computational framework for what drives this responsibility aversion and how it relates to the choices if you are willing to assume responsibility or not. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk caveats for a second, if you don't mind. What other things do you need to look at You know, down the road? Would size of the group, for example, affect how likely people were to make decisions for it? Or you know, what kinds of consequences there are to making a decision? Say, everyone gets mad at you. Is that something that you're going to look at? So yeah, that's a very good question. Um, first, we don't know what the size of the group, what impact it would have. That needs to be tested. But we can imagine that uh, increasing the size will make you even more responsibility averse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're very interested in looking at how people learn to change their responsibility aversion or their choices to lead or follow based on the consequences of their actions. And that's something that we're actively pursuing now. In terms of caveats, I would also say that, as you mentioned, first of all, of course, this is only one uh, study, and we hope that it can spark some discussion and, and more incorporation of mathematical models in this type of field of research, but obviously it needs much more empirical evidence to become a mainstream theory, and that's a good thing. And the other thing is that we don't uh, really measure causality. So uh, we don't know, for example, if people are in leadership positions because they make this type, this choice in a specific way, or they're, they're choosing this way because they have experience in such positions. Okay. Thank you so much, Micah. You're welcome. Thank you. Micah Edelson is a postdoc in the Department of Economics at the University of Zurich. You can find a link to his research and a related insight at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And don't forget to weigh in with your thoughts and questions on this month's book selection. That's The Book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect for the August 30th episode. You can tweet to us at Science Magazine or email us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the Science site, where you can also find research and news stories discussed in each episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.